I'm Brendan. And I'm Tara. And this is Now We're Farming. So what are we talking about today? Today we're going to talk about how to be profitable and small scale. So to put some parameters around what we mean as small scale versus large scale, we're talking about somebody who raises four to six, maybe 10 pigs versus somebody who has a barn that holds 2,500 pigs. Right, because you can't just jump into 2,500 pigs, right? No, you have to work your way up to that. Right. And, and so you're forced to start small scale, but how do you make that work? Right. So the big thing that we noticed, and we saw this firsthand, well, I think we started with chickens. We had brought the chickens to our first small farm, and of course we wanted to sell the eggs. But I couldn't figure out how the eggs in the grocery store were going for three bucks. Because it was, you know, at that time I was buying chicken feed retail, and it was like $14 or somewhere around there for a bag of chicken feed, and I had invested all of this money into um, equipment for the chickens just to feed them and water them and, and my little coop and stuff. And at that point, I think we had not a lot of birds, maybe 20 or 25 birds. But my eggs, even if I sold them for 4 or $5, which were raising some eyebrows from friends and family, I still wasn't making any money. You're breaking even. At best, yeah. And sure, the eggs were, I'm doing air quotes here, great. But yeah, I couldn't figure out how they did it. And so we learned really quickly that in order to make modern agriculture work, it's an economy of scale thing, that you need to have thousands of chickens to spread the cost of your feed out and to spread the, the cost of the equipment and your mortgage and everything else out across all of those uh, items. because. You still need, um, whether you have 25 chickens or you have 2,500 chickens, uh, you, you still need some things, uh, some equipment, some key pieces of things. You need a barn, you need all of this stuff, and uh, you can spread that out a across a, a lot of animals really quickly. But we couldn't just do that. We couldn't just go to 2,500 chickens. That was a lot of money. Um, so yeah, we learned really quickly, right? We learned really quickly that it became about putting the inputs. So somebody who raises, I keep going back to pigs, but we're going to go back to pigs. So somebody who raises 10 pigs still needs to have a tractor that's going to clean out their barn and move the feed and do all of that work. But if you're only spreading that out across 10 pigs, that makes for a very expensive pig. If that same tractor can service 2,500 hogs at the same time, then all of a sudden that pork becomes a lot cheaper. So when you look at a large-scale operation, like looking at the farmers that were surrounding us, they might have a couple hundred acres of land and maybe one barn, but the outlay of all of that stuff is millions of dollars worth of uh, equipment and, and assets, right? Yeah, and they've, that's something that's a benefit of having multi-generational farming. So they get handed down assets, which they can then borrow against to build new assets, which they pay off and hand off to the next generation of kids and farmers. And it just continues on into the cycle. And as they do that, it gets cheaper and cheaper to farm 
and it gets more and more profitable because what they're able to do is do things like grow their own hay for their cows that they sell for then beef or dairy. And then those products become cheaper for them to produce and cheaper for us on the grocery store aisles, but it becomes more difficult for first-generational farmers or small-scale farmers like us who are trying to crack the market. Right. So the bigger you get, the more opportunity you have to squeeze the cost of these inputs, the feed, the equipment, the fertilizer, all of that stuff. And so where I was buying chicken feed for $14 a bag retail, now I was only buying one at a time, somebody who has bins on the property can bulk buy that same amount of grain for $7. And if you're growing it yourself, if you have the land and the equipment, you can squeeze that down further to maybe $3 for that same uh, 50 pounds of chicken feed. And so all of a sudden, you know, when you scale that across a lot of animals or a lot of, you know, say sources of revenue, that's where your profit is. Exactly. And so when you don't have the opportunity to do that, what do you do? So we recognize this firsthand that you know, sort of through the chickens and through some of the other things that we were doing that if you actually stopped and looked at what am I spending versus what am, you know, what am I bringing in? What is my profit margin on this? We weren't making any money. So how do we squeeze these inputs? And I think the short answer is, is that unless you have access to capital, you really can't. You can try to be creative, right? And, and we certainly did this over the years with the various projects that we had going, and we, we continue to, to squeeze inputs. But I think we realized that whatever we got into on the farm, whatever an- animal or crop or whatever thing we wanted to grow, we recognized that it needed to be high value. And that was whether we liked it or not. Instead of competing against price, we decided we needed to compete against quality. Right, because there were more dollars to play with to find a profit margin when the value of the item was higher naturally. Right. So I think you and I had, when, when we had started out, we had absolutely seen small farms target organic and target locally raised movements and try ethically, to work... Ethically raised. Ethically raised, yeah. 100%. Um, and we, I think, we think we held those same values. We like good food. We like well cared for uh, animals. Um, we like all of those things. But what we realized was is that as a first generation, whether we liked it or not, without a lot of capital, we need to target these these products because we wouldn't make it otherwise. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's not uncommon to see um, a lot of small farms also happen to be organic or um, have a, some sort of uh, social angle to their farm, whether they're community-supported agriculture or, um, you know, they're heavily diversified. They kind of have to be. Yes, we have to be diversified. So we had to find where our niche was going to be. Right, and we only had, what, a unit and a half? A unit and a half, and that was with us getting rid of the goats. So we needed to figure out what we were going to do with that unit and a half. And you had already mentioned a few times that you were interested in sheep. Yes, and so we went to the Royal Winter Fair and we explored that further. And we were approached by a lot of meat farmers. There was a lot of meat breed of sheep there. And we talked to the farmers about them and we explored that option for us. We still couldn't see how we were going to make profit right. with that market. Yeah, because the wool was going for 
a couple dollars a pound and a, a, a sheep might only throw six or eight pounds of wool at best. We saw some like sideline animals, right? There were alpacas and people selling alpacas. They were doing a lot of advocating, right? They were really falling over themselves to sell you on the characteristics of their breed and what made it so awesome or their animal. But what I took away from that was the selling that they were having to do, right? Yeah, they were having to push their products. They were having to really explain to people why why their product was way better than everybody else's product. And the alpaca people especially were like, this fiber is the greatest, it's super soft, and they were really adamant that their fiber was the best. And then you'd go to a meat farmer and he'd be like, oh, I have the best breed of meat sheep. And then you'd walk 10 feet and that guy would tell you that his completely different breed was the (laughs) best meat breed of sheep. And so it was really hard to navigate through the different breeds of sheep and why one was better than the other. Yeah, it felt like an infomercial for animals. Yes. Yeah. And we kind of decided we didn't want to have to do that. Right. Well, because we couldn't, right? The one thing that I think we, that we weren't, uh, what would you call it, like blowing smoke with our, our animals, uh, we, we needed whatever we were growing, whether it was going to be organic this or local that or working a quality angle, we needed it to speak for itself. I didn't want to have to tell you it was the best. I wanted you to pick it up and know it was the best. Yeah, and we knew we kind of needed that. So we left the Royal. We came home. You started the search. I did start the search. So we needed to find this unicorn breed of sheep. We wanted to find a breed of sheep that was going to be dual purpose because we weren't 100% confident that the wool market was going to be there. And we wanted, we knew we didn't want a dairy breed. Mm-hmm. And then we knew that we wanted um, something that was going to be high quality wool, but then could be used for meat if we needed to. And it needed to be sheep, one, because I just wanted sheep, I guess, if we're being honest. And two, because we, while there were other sources of fiber, we felt like the sheep stuck to that original mantra of being genuine, that we didn't have to explain that this was, you know, this was from a yak, but uh, it makes great fiber, or this is from an alpaca, and it's good fiber. We knew that wool was wool, and everybody understood that. Uh, We just needed to find the best wool. Yes, and we also had only one and a half units left, and one unit is equal to eight sheep, and so we knew we could get 12 sheep, which was higher than any of the other livestock, livestock options. So... We began our search for the perfect breed of sheep, and I went through Cotswold and Corydales and Blueface Lesters and almost every breed you could think of, trying to find this perfect breed of sheep. And we finally found it, and that was the Rambouillet. So we had selected this breed of sheep that we wanted, um, and it was because it was a good dual-purpose breed, and it fit the high-value characteristics that we were looking for. And then what happened? We went to go look for them, right? And we had quite a time. We went to search for them, and they didn't exist in Ontario. And that kind of made me excited because it meant that we were going to be introducing this new breed of sheep to Ontario. Right. That was a check mark. That, that was, was a check mark. It was yeah. an untapped market. And it seemed like people were looking for them, but just didn't have them. It was also scary, too, because we didn't know why. We didn't know why they weren't in Ontario or what the issues were. Yes. So I... Continued on my track to try to find these Rambouillet sheep. We found that getting sheep across the border, well, there was there was flocks closer to us if we went to 
the American side, it was going to be incredibly difficult to get them across the border and through quarantine and all those things. So the only option that we really had was a colony out in Alberta. Yeah, so on the other side of the country, basically. Pretty much on the other side of the country. Right. Yeah, so we purchased our 12 sheep. We got 11 ewes and one ram, and we got them trucked out to us. They showed up in November, and we started our business being shepherds. Yeah, so there we were. We had our sheep. We didn't quite know what we were doing at that point, but we knew that we had a good base. And we knew that the value of these animals um, was going to allow us to flail around a bit and kind of figure things out, right? And that that is what happened. So I think our first year with the sheep, uh, we borrowed a lot of the stuff that we had learned with your hobby horses and just sort of transfer that over to the sheep. So we were feeding the horses hay, dry hay that we were buying, uh, and we fed that uh, same hay to the sheep. And uh, they were getting, uh, you know, a few bales a day. And so a lot of the fencing and, and the techniques that we were using to manage the horses transferred over, and it was, it was kind of all right. Yes. Yeah. And then we went into our first shearing season. Yes. And so we sheared all our sheep, and it actually went okay. And then we went to go and get it milled. And I think that it was that process that we realized, right, this is why nobody in Ontario has this sheep. Yeah, yeah, and that was scary. Uh, So part of the lesson from that was, is that if, you know, when you're approaching certain products, you need to be uh, able to take it end to end, or you you need to have some wiggle room to be able to take it end to end. So we were looking at all this raw wool and realize that, okay, we need to somehow get this into into yarn or something sellable, right? Because nobody's necessarily going to buy raw wool. No, they want it in yarn or and, at least comb top that they can spin themselves. And most sheep farmers in Canada are meat farmers. So the wool is usually a byproduct. A shearer might charge you so many dollars per head to shear a sheep. So let's say it's $5 a head. Uh, if you're getting five pounds of wool off of that sheep, most farmers are a member, or most sheep farmers are a member of the wool growers co-op. So that wool gets bundled up into big bags at the sheep farm and it gets sold to the co-op who then of course markets it. Yeah, it just becomes carpet wool. Yeah, well it kind of goes all over the place, right? Like there's some of the good wools go for a little bit more, but not a lot more. And so it's typical when you talk to a sheep farmer, and we did a lot of this, that their wool um, was basically covering the cost of shearing. They would get paid a dollar per pound, and that was like just a little bit more than it was costing to actually just get it off the sheep. So they were looking at the wool as a real byproduct. It wasn't, it was it's like- It's not a, even a byproduct. It was almost a nuisance to them. It was That beer they were money. having to shear their sheep so that they would be healthy, but then they were like, I have to shear these sheep to get it done. And when we told them that we were gonna get into wool farming, or fiber farming, with the sheep, they almost, like they all rolled their eyes. Right. And they all kind of chuckled and yes. thought it was kind of funny and cute. And so we knew, I think, when we got the sheep that we wanted to try to get our fine wool into a fine yarn so that uh, we could target this. We were never going to be targeting the carpet wool, the selling it to the wool co-op. We, we always knew, I think, that we were going to try to sell this as finished yarn or something like that but we had a heck of a time heck of a time finding a mill that could do it so because we were the only ones with the Ramboulet sheep there is nobody no mill here in Ontario that had the equipment to 
process this fine of wool. It just didn't exist here. They had um, lots of fiber mills, but they just didn't bother, and why would they, buying an piece of equipment that would comb our wool. So most textile mills in the world are in Asia now. What we discovered pretty quickly was that a lot of the fiber mills that existed in Ontario to, to convert our fiber were cottage class uh, mills, right? They would be owned by an individual. They were a small business. They couldn't really process anything at scale. Um, and But that was okay for us because we were tiny. When you're looking at doing something at a different scale, you have to expect that there aren't necessarily going to be industries ready to support you or vendors ready to support you. You're going to have to do a bit of legwork. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Those can be, and you and I have talked about this, that at, at a small scale farm, as long as the margin is there, barriers to entry aren't a bad thing. That they start to become this IP that you have, this, you know, if you can figure these challenges out and accept these challenges, it starts to add even more value to your product. It becomes apparent that it's an untapped market. Right. And maybe for good reason, Maybe right? for good reason. So we were feeding the sheep our dry hay, the same as the horses, and uh, we had gotten our uh, wool milled, and we got our wool back, and it was a really amazing moment, I think, to... We were really excited to, to crack the boxes open and look at what we had produced. Yeah, because this wasn't like the eggs, right? It was like the eggs times 10 um, to hold a, a skein or a ball, let's say, of yarn in your hands um, and uh, and know that you took that, you know, that was that was 100% from scratch. Well, I think the anticipation is bigger too. When you get an egg every day from the chicken, mm-hmm. that's not nearly as exciting as waiting an entire year right. to hold on to that yarn. So it cost a lot of money to make that yarn, right? When you look at what we invested in the sheep, and then the hay that we were feeding them, because we didn't have a lot of land to graze them on. Even 12 sheep still eat quite a bit. And then we also had to pay for the milling on top of that, right? Even with all of those high input costs in where you're, you know, you have the worst of every situation. You're, you're buying things at retail and you're, um, you're dealing with cottage industry uh, type uh, uh, suppliers. We still had enough margin enough value in that yarn that we could sell it for a reasonable price so a price that somebody felt comfortable paying and still make a profit not a huge profit but still make a profit and that's how we knew we had something yeah because we also were having lambs born while the profit was smaller on on the yarn where we really made up for it was in the lamb sales and we've often talked about this that with our sheep that one of two things covers the cost for the year. So it covers our input costs. Either you could say it's the wool or it's selling lambs in the spring. That one of those two things kind of covers, they both make about the same amount of revenue and our cost is about half of our revenue. So yeah, one of those two things is paying for the, uh, for the existence of the sheep on the farm. And so, yeah, so we were able to make it work. We didn't have a thousand sheep uh, we didn't have a gigantic barn. We didn't even have land. We were buying hay. We were paying somebody else to mill it, um, but we could still make it work. Now, we had to do this a little bit different. We weren't selling directly to a store or you know, bundling this all up in one big load and selling it to a wholesaler or something and getting a check for this, right? We had to 
move our product a little differently. We had to get creative there. Yeah, we had a direct sell. We had to find the knitters and sell them the yarn. And we had to put our salesman's hat on to go out and do that. And we had to find avenues to do that. So when you can't sell in stores because you can't afford the middleman, then you need to find places to sell things, whether that's uh, farmer's markets or in our case, wool shows. So wool shows for us um, are local-ish, kind of anywhere in Ontario we'll go to. And it turns out there's actually quite a few fiber farmers in Ontario. And we've kind of formed a little union together. And we see each other at these wool shows and you set up a booth and the knitters come. And they come and they like to support local, but they also really like quality products. And so we really like showing off our yarn there because we know that when they pick it up, they're going to know that, A, it's local, as local as it possibly can be, and that we really care about the quality of the product. A bit of this has to do with where your passions are. So when we got the sheep, we kind of always wanted the sheep. So we really need to work a bit harder for the sheep. There was some practical element to having the sheep, but there was also a desire to have the sheep. We liked the idea of having sheep. And so our heart was in it a little bit more with the sheep. It wasn't just about dollars and cents and um, and being in agriculture. It was also about having some sheep in the pasture. Yeah. And then we also had to look at branding. Branding was a really important aspect of direct selling. So when you're standing there in front of your consumer, you have to make sure that you have thought through the labeling and all of those other th- aspects of the product that you're selling and making sure that it's cohesive and it looks nice and that they're going to feel the value in it as well. Right. So if you're asking top dollar for something or uh, it's a higher quality product, I think the core product needs to feel good. It needs to look good, um, but it also needs to smell good. And, and the labeling and the design really matters a lot. And we learned that really quick. Yeah, and it wasn't even just because we would show up at the wool shows with the wool, but we'd also be selling with our honey products. So we're Brennan's a beekeeper and we have some beehives. And so we would sell the honey and we would sell the soaps and we would sell um, like hand creams and all those other things that we make with the beeswax. And so we wanted to make sure that the branding that we used on the yarn was also going to work with the branding we were using on the honey and all of the byproducts of the honey. If you are starting out and you are marketing some products, put some energy into the design of your labeling, of your packaging. Look at the digital print stuff that's available today that just wasn't around 10 years ago. Check out the Vista prints, the moo.coms, the the, uh, plethora of digital printing that is out there and try to create some uniformity. Uh, we, We spent a lot of time, I think, looking at Pinterest ideas for packaging and sending links across and scouring uh, farmers markets. Common for uh, me, I think I drove you nuts, taking pictures of products in the grocery store that just had really cool packaging, really nice, nice looking packaging to take inspiration from for our stuff. Because when you're at a wool show, you're competing against 150, 200 other wool vendors. And they're not going to go into every single booth. So you might have the best product there, but if they haven't come into your booth to touch it and to figure out that it's the best one there, 
then you're going to lose out on that sale. Right. So making sure that your branding is there, that your booth looks nice, and that that person wants to come into your 10 by 10 space and touch the things that you've brought there, then you're going to lose out. That's right. So it wasn't just enough to have a good base product. Yeah, you had to do the nonverbal communication before you had the opportunity to do the sales pitch. If you're going to have these premium products, people need to have all the feel goods that go with them. Which kind of comes down to don't feel like you being a small scale farmer is a negative thing. It's actually kind of a positive and you can lean into it a bit. So when you're talking to your consumer, you can be super humble about the size that you are and be totally comfortable with that. And they're gonna be fine with it too. You don't need to talk yourself up as if you're bigger than what you really are. We have this mantra that we follow 100% in everything that we do on our farm, which is that respect the intelligence of the person buying your stuff. We talk to other uh, business owners and farmers and um, sometimes they don't respect the customer. Sometimes they, I don't want to say they think they're dumb or something. Look at your customer and know that they're going to make judgment calls about everything that you're doing and uh, they may know more than you about certain aspects. Like we're not knitters. No, like I can knit and I can purl and I can do anything that's square but I am not capable of doing a sweater and I just don't have the time to pick up those skills and so when somebody comes to me and they have a really complicated knitting question my answer to them is I'm really good at animal husbandry but I'm not so good at knitting (laughs) yeah you're small and you're selling your story of your farm and your family in the products that you're creating and you're pushing quality so like any good business owner you're gonna want to diversify your farm You don't want to, and pun intended, put all your eggs in one basket. Terrible. You don't want to put everything you've got into your sheep. So we've talked a lot about sheep today because that's a big part of our farm. But we have other things going on as well that make us money every single day. Right. So we're on to our second farm now. So we've we've scaled up from uh, our little hobby farm into a bigger place. And part of that involved generating a business plan and talking about uh, the various units. And we'll get into the business plan in a future episode. I, I do recall when we first got started, uh, we had the bees. And the sheep were just kind of becoming a thing right around then. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew we wanted some more land to grow the sheep. But um, I had in my business plan a scale up of the hives that we had, uh, and it was getting into like a lot of hives. We, we had a scale up plan to, to get up to about 100 beehives, and that that was going to be a, a major facet of our farm scale up plan. Fast forward a few years, uh, realities kind of hit where the bees haven't been doing so well. I'd, last year, we faced our first um, significant losses. Uh, where we had lost almost 50% of our bees. Uh, and that's never happened before. I mean, we, we might have um, uh, 10 or 15% losses um, in six years of beekeeping. Now, we haven't been doing this for 30 years, but um, those kinds of losses are normal. It's normal every winter to maybe have a hive or two, or you know, depending on how many you have, about 10 to 15% of your hives die or just not make it. 
And that can be for a number of different reasons. It could be starvation, it could be uh, varroa mites, it could be pesticides, it could be anything. But this year was a real setback. And it reminded me that diversification is something that we cannot lose sight of on our farm. And I would argue too that even large farms today, what we would consider large scale, uh, you know, single focus farms, uh, or appear to be single focus farms, are still maintain this diversification thing. And it's something that I think you cannot lose sight of on your farm. Because had we had invested in the bees, um, as aggressively as we wanted to, we'd be in really rough shape this year, I think. We were really in rough shape. And, you know, we jumped into the wool thing, but even that is diversified in the fact that, like, we sell the lambs. Yes. That there's a market there. And even in, when you look at the beehives, we still use the wax to do additional products. Right. So we're using, we're diversifying even that avenue of income even further. It's not just honey. We take the wax and we make a bunch of other things out of it. And then we use the property to board horses on. We have a solar panel that brings in income. We've rented out farmland to a co-op farmer Mm -hmm. who uses that land as well. And all of those are different avenues of income using the same farm. You know, our last episode, we were talking about squeezing the potential out of the resources that you've got. And uh, I think uh, 100%, it's it's a good idea to also make sure that it's not all bottlenecked on the same resource. So, you know, the bees have very little to do with the sheep. No, but what it means is that when we're at a wool show and we're selling wool, somebody might come in and have bought all the wool that they're planning on buying that day. Yes. And then they'll come in and instead of buying the wool from us, they'll buy a jar of honey and some soap and a lip balm. Sure. And then that helps at the end of the day, that actually makes up quite a few of our sales. It does, yeah. And it helps our day immensely to cover the cost of being there and then also providing us with a profit. It gives us access as well to other markets where maybe a certain type of product isn't appropriate. We've come to realize this over the years is that different people will see your operation differently. Some people think of us only as beekeepers and they have no idea that you know these sheep we have are anything special. We let people think that, and that's yes. totally fine because to them that is what we are. Right. And for us, that's what we are to them too. Yeah, I think don't get too bent out of shape over your identity. Yeah, but diversifying is so important to protecting your farm every year. You wouldn't put all your stocks into one. No. It's easy to get excited about something that's making you money. Right. And so it's making sure that your head's screwed on really tight and that you understand that just because something's making you money doesn't mean that it's always going to continue to make you money and that it's there's risk there too. And so diversification is this is the biggest safety mechanism you can put in place into your into your farm. The big takeaways from today is to be comfortable with your size, to diversify your farm, make sure that you've got lots of different hands in different pots. Try to stay ahead of trends. So identify when there's people who are saying you can't do that or you're seeing gaps in the industry, to not be afraid to jump in and try to fill it, that those are opportunities that are untapped markets. And then we also want to say to go ahead and put your sales hat on and start selling. But direct selling is the way to go and that you need to get in front of your consumer and remove the middleman and be comfortable with with pushing your product onto people. So that was good. That was good. Are you doing chores tonight or am I? Let's go feed the animals.